being alone. Many times that strikes us as a physical reality, those times in life whenever we're not surrounded by anyone at all. It's just me, myself, and I. And there are times when this happens. There are times when we find ourselves completely devoid of the presence or the accompaniment of another person. And while that's a physical reality that we might not be in close proximity to anyone else, likely that's not what scares us. Likely what strikes our hearts with fear is the emotional response that we have to that, namely loneliness. Whenever that strikes, that's a whole different thing. Because, in fact, whenever that loneliness strikes at our hearts, that's when we feel, feel that fear, that anxiety, when we truly feel desolate, alone, and often afraid. And this happens in different ways. Perhaps we're at a big party, and all of a sudden the people start to trickle away, and eventually we find ourselves alone, and we're the only one that is left cleaning up what is left over. Or perhaps we're at a funeral and we're actually surrounded by a lot of physical bodies, but in fact, because of the one that we've loved or the one that we've cared for, now that they're gone, we feel this loneliness and we feel this desolation and we feel very alone. Or maybe we're just in the house and we're by ourselves and we notice the sky starts to darken and then all of a sudden those storm clouds roll in and we feel that violent thunderstorm approaching and we feel very alone and very terrified. These are moments whenever we feel that emotional response, when we feel lonely, when we feel afraid, when we feel we're not proximate to others. Does this happen to our relationship with God? And if it does, what are we supposed to do? What is our response to be during those moments of desolation when we might feel that we're not close to our Lord and to our God? We start off this morning with the Acts of the Apostles, and again, this continues the same trajectory that we've been on since we began the Easter season. That we're reflecting on those moments of the Apostles' lives right after the resurrection, and we're seeing how much they're filled with passion, with conviction, and what they did immediately after. And so this particular account, it gives us this story about how Peter stands up with the other apostles. He starts to tell all of those that are listening about how they've killed, they've crucified, and they've indeed caused suffering for our Lord. But it's not to give them shame. It's not to cause them any sort of anxiety or any sort of dread. It's not to condemn them at all. But instead, he's telling them about God's plan, God's foreknowledge, how God used this for a greater good, how he used this particular evil to make something great come out of it. And indeed, that's only because of God's plan. And so he's laying all of this out, but he's even going back to the time of the prophets or even to the time of King David. Because while these people that are listening, those that were in charge and responsible for crucifying Jesus, while they would have known of Jesus, they would have likely doubted his word but not so with David. They would have believed his word. They would have really hung their hats on that. And so, in fact, Peter's using this very word to tell them about how Jesus approached death, how he approached his passion, his crucifixion, his death, and how he did so with courage. So it's telling about how he was unafraid, how he was able to face even death itself because he knew God his Father would take care of him. So those words that David wrote, even though David died, Jesus did not. And because of that, we're witnesses to the fact that he has risen again. Peter spoke those words so long ago, it rings true for us today. And then we move on to the second reading, and we hear more from Peter in his first letter to the church at the time. And he begins to speak, and he's telling us about God who is an impartial judge, that we should live our sojourn in those lives of reverence. 
Now, what this means is to live our earthly journey in that sense of reverence, to live in obedience to the laws, the commands, and the different things that our Lord has asked us to do. But it's not for naught. Because, in fact, he's reminding us of the ways that we have been washed and we've been purchased not by any sort of diminishable sum, not by silver, not by gold, not by anything else, but by the blood of the Lamb. And indeed, this is the core of the Easter message, reminding us that we've been purchased, but we're to go forward and to live out that purchase well. And indeed, Peter really, he handles this very well as well. But it's also the fact that he tells us to live in hope and faith, to live in relationship with God our Father, and to really let that sink in. That as we see we've been purchased, as we've been encouraged to go and live our lives well, then nonetheless, we're continuing to live in that faith and that hope. That's what St. Peter wanted for the church at the time. That's what he wants for us today. And then finally, we arrive at the Gospel according to Luke. And it's a very familiar story, likely for all of us, that road to Emmaus, that story that we often hear right after the resurrection accounts. And for good reason, because this happens later on that Sunday morning, whenever they find that the Lord has risen. That we hear about these two disciples, and they're walking the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We're told a trip of about seven miles. And as they're going, they're conversing, they're discussing, they're debating. They're wondering about what has happened with the Lord. And indeed, as they're walking along, they're so intense in their discussion that they don't notice that someone else has joined them, namely Jesus Christ himself. And even their eyes, even when they do see him, they're not able to quite comprehend who this is. And so they continue along. And then Jesus asks the question, what are you discussing as you are walking along? And it almost seems that Cleopas, one of the two disciples, he answers, and it almost seems as he, that he's antagonistic towards our Lord. Are you the only one who's been visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? He's almost astounded that Jesus doesn't know about all of these things. Then Jesus asks a follow-up question. What sort of things? And then he starts to lay out everything about Jesus the Nazarene, how he was a prophet mighty in word and deed, and how they thought that he was the one to redeem Israel, but how the leaders of their people had handed him over to be crucified and then and to suffer and to die. And as all of these things happen, then they're filled with discouragement. And then they start to go into the resurrection accounts. It's been three days, and all of a sudden the tomb's empty. We've heard about all of these different things. We're confused. We don't know what's happening. And Jesus responds, Oh, how foolish you are! How slow to believe all the prophets that said, have said in concern to Christ. And he starts with Moses. He starts with all the prophets. He lays it all out before them as they're walking along and really discusses that life of faith with them and what the scriptures do to indicate and to point towards our Lord. And they do so and they listen. And we know that they're listening intently and they're, they're sort of intrigued because as they're going along, eventually they reach their point and Jesus acts like he's going on further, but they want him to stay because they're feeling comfort for some reason. And so they stay, and he comes, and he has dinner with them. So he takes bread, he gives thanks, he blesses it, he breaks it, and immediately their eyes are opened, and he banishes. And they realize that they were burning inside, that they recognized that the Lord was indeed in their presence and in their midst as they walked along. And they go immediately back to Jerusalem. They don't care that it's nightfall. They don't care that it's dark outside. They run straight back because their hearts are filled with such joy at knowing that the Lord had indeed been in their midst. 
But we look at those two disciples, and it almost seems odd. It's confusing, because they lived in the time of Jesus that they likely conceivably been with him for years. How in the world did these two disciples not see the Lord? How in the world could they not have understood as they were walking along that this was the one that had just risen from the dead? Why were they so blind? Perhaps there's a variety of reasons. Because whenever we look at that, we can realize that those disciples were struggling with many things. Perhaps they were struggling with false expectations of who Jesus was. That they thought that he was going to be that military leader. That he was going to lead them out of the oppression that they were in and that he was going to reestablish that kingdom of Israel. So he's going to reestablish all of these things. And so they thought he was going to be this sort of military leader. And immediately they're crushed whenever he is crucified. They had false hopes, and they had false impressions. Or maybe they felt like they were doing just fine on their own, that they had their understanding, they kind of had Jesus over on the side, everything was going in their way, and all of a sudden when Jesus is removed from their midst, they're thrown into chaos and confusion, because they felt like they were doing pretty well, and they were kind of standing on their own two feet, and all of a sudden when Jesus is gone, they're in disarray. Or maybe it's their sadness. Maybe it's their things that were going on in their lives. Maybe it was the way that their hearts were filled with that level of being cast down. The ways that they were struck and the ways that they saw what the Lord was doing and they didn't understand. So they were afraid, they were fearful, they were confused, they were sad, they were distressed at this time and very disturbed. So all of these things made it very hard for them to see the Lord. But eventually he does reveal himself to them. But here's the catch. Because my brothers and sisters, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we might think, look at them and give them a sort of side eye. We might think that they are ones that could accept blame for what they've done. We don't understand exactly how they could have missed the Lord in their midst. That we think that they did everything wrong. How in the world could they have missed the Lord in their midst? At that day and at that time, he was physically standing there. How could they have missed him? Here's the thing. Oftentimes, we do the same thing. Because my brothers and sisters, make no mistake, oftentimes we're on that road to Emmaus. Because the road to Emmaus was a mistake. They shouldn't have been on that road, that they left Jerusalem. They were leaving that promised city where all the other disciples were gathered, and they were going back home. They were going away, because they didn't know what to do, and so they just kind of lost faith. They lost hope. They lost that conviction that the Lord was truly going to be raised. They'd just given up. And it can often be that way with us. Because oftentimes we might have unrealistic expectations of Jesus. That we think that if we just attend and if we go to church, if we believe in Jesus, that everything's going to go great for us. That nothing's going to go wrong and we feel that we're just going to get get out of jail free card. That we feel like everything's going to be just fine. But what happens when it isn't? What happens when Jesus doesn't seem like he's living up to expectation? What happens whenever it seems like he's not giving us prosperity or he's not giving us what we want? Perhaps there's false expectations and perhaps there's some adjustment that needs to be made. Or maybe we feel like we're doing just fine on our own. That we feel like we can rely on our own resources, we've got our own things, and Jesus is nice as kind of a backup plan. Whenever things really, really go wrong, that's when I'm going to start believing, that's when I'm really going to start talking to the Lord. But it doesn't work that way either. Because so often, whenever we reach that moment, whenever everything goes wrong, then all of a sudden we're thrown into disarray and confusion, and we have no idea where to look for the Lord because we've never been looking for Him before. We're not designed for independence. We're designed for the Lord. Or maybe perhaps there's sadness. 
Maybe there's grief. Maybe there's affliction. Maybe there's fear. There's anxiety. There's depression. There's distress. There's all of these different things that threaten to take our life of faith and crush it. That in fact, it may just not just be one thing, but it may be all sorts of things. It may be so many that we feel like we just can't turn. We don't know where to go. And we're ultimately feeling that we're just crushed and we're just done. Indeed, at moments in time, we can feel that way. Because the life of a Christian is never easy. That oftentimes it's one that is filled with affliction. That it's oftentimes filled with questions. It's oftentimes filled with those moments where we don't know where our God is. That it's really hard to see Him. But here's the thing. He's always there. He's always in our midst. He's promised us that He will never leave. He's promised us that even in the worst moments of our lives, that He will be right there walking alongside of us. Because the road to Emmaus, it's not a road that's foreign to us and just in some place over in the Holy Land. It's a journey that we travel each and every day. But we shouldn't be going to Emmaus. We should be headed towards Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem isn't just a physical city. Jerusalem is a spiritual city. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the place where we call home. It's that place where we're destined to live with God forever, the kingdom of God and that kingdom of heaven. But my brothers and sisters, we're always on that journey, and it's not easy all the time, and at times we can wonder if the Lord has completely forsaken us, if he's angry with us, if he's infuriated and kind of put us off to the side just as a time out. But oftentimes those are the moments when the Lord wants to show us that he's with us in a more powerful way. My brothers and sisters, when we're in those moments, we're not left to our own devices. We're not left to depression or discouragement or sadness. But instead, even this gospel passage, as much as the disciples got wrong, it shows us how they were given resources and tools, even in the midst of their desperate situation. At first, they were given the community. They left the community of the disciples, and they were largely filled with fear and with anxiety. And oftentimes, we need spiritual guidance, and we need spiritual mentorship. We need the life of the community as well. Because in those moments when we need support, the church is always here, and the community of faith, and even those confidants that we have within the church community, that they are here to support us in those worst of times. Or even the scriptures. Because notice, Jesus lays out the scriptures for them, and they find such comfort and such solace in those that they realize that things aren't as bad as they thought. And indeed, that's for us as well. Because even in the moments when we feel life is going terribly, we can open the scriptures and we can see where our Lord really is. That it is the word of God, and it gives us life and life abundantly. But notice the final way that Jesus reveals himself to them, and it's the most powerful way of all. It's the Eucharist. Because when he breaks bread for them, it all of a sudden dawns on them that Jesus Christ is there in their midst. He's there, he's present to them, he's made real. And indeed, it's that way for us as well. Because we've got seven sacraments, we've got seven avenues of grace. We've especially got the Eucharist for those moments in life when we don't know where to turn, we can't find God, we don't know where he is, and we might even be frustrated. We can turn to the Eucharist, we can turn to the sacraments, we can see our Lord and our God in so many different ways. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the challenge. Because so often in life, we can have those moments where it seems like the Lord is removed. It can seem that he's distanced. We are not quite sure where to look. We might even become resentful, afraid, or frustrated with him. But it need not be so. Because we have a God that walks with us always, that he journeys on us in that sojourn, much like St. Peter reminds us, that he resurrects and that he's with us always, that death has no sway over him and we need not fear anything, because we know that our Lord is always journeying along with us. 
And that's the reality, my brothers and sisters. No matter what distracts us, no matter what threatens to take away our view from the Lord, we need not feel that we're alone. We need not have fear of that loneliness. But instead, we should turn to our Lord and our God in those times, because he promises that he's always going to be here, and he's always going to be with us, no matter what happens. Because oftentimes we might feel that loneliness, whether it's at a party, whether it's at a funeral, whether it's even when that thunderstorm rolls up on our house. That's nothing new. The question is, whenever everything goes south, whenever those storms of life happen, who are you going to turn to? Who's been walking with you on your journey all this time? 